0: Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, just go to Squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the fast and easy cloud accounting solution helping millions of small business owners save time invoicing and get paid faster. You can try FreshBooks right now for free. Just go to freshbooks.com slash twip and enter twip in the how did you hear about us section for a free trial. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by stickyalbums.com. Do you want to book more clients? Nothing boosts your word-of-mouth referrals like giving each of your clients their own custom photo app. You can create your first app in minutes at StickyAlbums.com. This episode is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 40 million high-quality stock images, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. New accounts will receive 20% off any image subscription. Go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code TWIP914. In this special roundtable edition of This Week in Photo, we dive deep into the mysterious world of image backup and archiving. Industry experts Don Komarechka, Topher Martini, and Doug Kay join me to help remove some of the mystery around keeping your precious photos safe. It's Tuesday, October 7th, 2014, and this is Twitter. All right, welcome back to TWiP. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Joining me today for a special roundtable discussion on image storage and archiving for photographers are Mr. Don Komareczka, Mr. Doug K, and Topher Martini. Hey guys, how you doing? Frederick, it's great to be back. Yeah, it's, it's good to have all three here. So we've got we've got one, or actually we've got two newlyweds, or almost a newlywed. We've got a newlywed an almost married dude and a dude that's been married for how many decades, Doug? <laughs> uh,
1: 43 years.
0: 43 wow. years. Four decades plus three. Topher, yep. you're the outlier, right? So you're you're not married. <laughs> what What's uh, what's the deal there? You're uh, about to jump the broom in
2: a week or so, right? Absolutely. We're in the final three weeks, you know, kind of coming in for landing, and it's been a great time. So we're really excited and uh, also recently departed from Lytro and doing my own creative
0: projects. So it's going to be a good fall and a good new year. That's cool. Congratulations. Pre-congratulations on the on the nuptials and all that. Thank I'm, you very much. I'm sure you will make a wonderful husband and father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my fiance jokes, she's a, a wife and
2: photo assistant. She's the world's most amazing of both.
1: So Yeah,
0: there you go. There you go. Cool. Also, Mr. Don Komarechka, newlywed Don Komarechka, fresh off of the honeymoon adventure, right?
3: Yeah, well, so uh, the last time I was on the show, about a month ago, I was just about to get married, and uh, it went perfect, and then we uh, took off the next day to go to Bulgaria for a few weeks, which wow. is my, uh, my my wife's um, home country and an amazing place to visit. We decided that and we didn't want to relax on a beach so we uh, we rented a car and we drove across the country and uh, there's so many beautiful things to see from the natural landscapes there's like three or four different mountain ranges in that country, uh, some beautiful caves and just the culture and the architecture is, uh, is so uh, captivating to a photographer I mean from my point of view it's just a beautiful experience uh, you know from the work side of things but for the culture and just the experience we had so much fun um, then I came home for one day, and then I left for three weeks to the Yukon Wilderness. And so I came back from that two days ago, and uh, and it's just been a wild ride for this past month. I uh, did some beautiful time-lapse of the Northern Lights, uh, hiked around in, in some different areas, uh, traveling with a group of hunters. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's a different paradigm for me. Um, I kind of loosely follow the mantra of sort of... Uh, uh, leave only footprints and take only pictures when you're uh, when you're out taking you know landscape work and what have you. Sure. But when you're traveling with a group of hunters that are intent on shooting and killing animals. Uh, you have to kind of adjust the way that you flow because you're with these people and you have to be a part of that team as well as your own photographic work. And uh, I, I could never, like I, I don't own a gun, I could never uh, shoot uh, an animal or anything like that. So being a part of this different lifestyle and trying to tell that story while also kind of becoming a part of it was very interesting for me. And so That's photojournalism,
0: uh, man. That's That's photojournalism. Yeah, you know, being being the impartial fly on the wall while not trying to be part of the story is a trick,
3: right? <laughs> it is. It is. But you know, when when you have to, you know, uh, drag a moose out of the woods and they need your your muscle power to help it, you know, you you become a part of it, right? And yeah. so uh, you, you you can't abstract yourself from that as, as best as you would. Um, although, you know, the the, the photograph uh, the, the photographs tell a certain story. Mm-hmm. And uh, from my perspective, being at least kind of coming into the edge of that, it allows me to tell that story journalistically uh, from a completely different perspective. So I'm, I'm looking forward to digging through those photos and seeing what kind of stories I can come up with.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that as well. Speaking of traveling in backwoods and uh, exotic places, Mr. Doug Kay is back on the show again he made it you made it off the surface of the moon there right where where, where were you
1: I I was uh, I spent 12 days with our good friend Martin Bailey in Iceland yeah uh, pretending that I knew how to photograph landscapes which uh, <laughs> is yet to be seen but I gotta tell you I have never been so wet in my entire life really? um and you know Don mentioned the Aurora And I was so keen on getting a shot of the aurora and, you know, I was looking at the forecast for the magnetic fields and all this. I forgot one thing. Clouds. Oh. (laughs) If if it's a cloudy sky, you're not going to see anything. And uh, we had only one night that was clear and there wasn't really an opportunity. But it's, you know, this is the the thing that you learn in landscape, which is if, you know, the old phrase, if you want to... Photograph something beautiful. pointer If you want a beautiful photograph, point your camera at something beautiful, and you have to go to pretty extreme places to get extreme pictures. And that would be Iceland. I don't know of a place on the planet that is probably as gorgeous and extreme as Iceland. It is spectacular. We had a good time. That's
0: what I keep hearing about Iceland. It's uh, you know, it sounds like it's a it's a location where you point your camera in a direction, close your eyes, and take a picture, and then print that and you have art.
1: (laughs) Well, in the country, it's not about ice. It's about water in every form, from ice to snow to more waterfalls. I mean, you drive down the road, and you're never out of sight of a waterfall. And then you've got ice and icebergs and glaciers. There's a lot of of geological activity still there, right? Yeah, well, you're you're right at the the point where the European and North American tectonic plates come together, mm -hmm. and you can actually go to that. You can actually see that, uh, you can go there. They're actually drifting apart three millimeters a year, wow. and uh, it's good to know that North America is actually maybe 70 meters higher than Europe. Uh, I'm glad to see that. So, <laughs> but yeah,
0: especially in Colorado, boom boom. boom. No, no joke. Yeah, <laughs> <no>. Or Washington. <laughs> or Washington. Yes, yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I, anyway, I, I want to echo what you said there, Doug, about uh, sort of getting skunked on the the whole Northern Lights thing. There were a few times where we went out to the perfect scene. I set up this beautiful shot with two mountains and a valley coming in framed it all up and And was just hoping, hoping for clear skies, just cloud cover immediately after I set up the camera. Yeah. it ran the entire night doing time lapse of just clouds, dark clouds <laughs> wow. well some you know photographers say sometimes it bees like that, right
0: <laughs> you yeah. go out there fishing, sometimes you come back empty handed but sometimes you come back with amazing shots though right so oh, exactly. that 's one of the ones Iceland is definitely on my list. Alaska is on my list. I was talking to uh, someone the other day about. You guys have seen that iconic shot of where, you know, the bears in the, in the water or the river and the salmon are swimming upstream and spawning, mm-hmm. jumping into the bear's mouth. Apparently, that happens all the time. So <laughs> oh, yeah, It's it does. Can... not unique, you know, so I'm like, that's not unique? Okay, I need to go and try to capture a shot I, like that.
1: I've been to both places. What's interesting about Iceland is there is no wildlife whatsoever unless you like sheep. Really? Um, you know, there's because it's too cold. Nobody would want to live there. There are no creatures. You got puffins. You got sheep. You got those gorgeous Icelandic horses. That's, That's it. There's cool. nothing else.
3: Hmm. Interesting. Well, so in Yukon, you've got to worry about grizzly bears and and wolves and all sorts of things. That uh, so you know if, if you have to go to the bathroom, you you take a gun with you. Uh, and so you know everywhere you look, there's potential for for death. And so it's very helpful to be traveling <laughs> with a troop of armed guards. Uh, around with me all the time, so I, I'd much prefer Iceland, I think. Don, I gotta tell you, man, um, just you uttering
0: that sentence, you know, the, those two sentences, <laughs> You have, you have to take weapons to use the restroom, and everywhere you go there's a potential for death. That does not sound like a
3: loving, heart-filled honeymoon to me. I don't know. <laughs> well, no. See, on that trip with the group of hunters, I, I went on my own. Uh, okay. My, my lovely wife stayed at home and, uh, and and kept things running here. But, you know, for all of that risk and, and that that troublesome, I mean, there were some absolutely beautiful landscapes that that I was able to, to capture. I'm just wow. working on an uh, editing shot of, uh, of a Northern wow. Lights image right now, and and so this is one of, I don't know, hundreds in this time-lapse that are all equally beautiful, and I'm having a really hard time picking which ones I want to go and, uh, and, and sort of frame that and, looks, and That looks computer generated. That's amazing. Right that's Yeah, Ghostbusters. it's Ghostbuster style, and, and so I'm I'm having a lot of fun with this, and it was really really well worth any risks involved uh, in that process. You know, while we were up there, we heard of some people in uh, in you know that region of the world that sort of met their demise uh, from some of the, uh, the the natural hazards in, in this region, and so it, it's it's sort of a wake up call. You really have to be cognizant of your scenario, uh, you know, your surroundings, uh, and try to to make these great images. And you know, occasionally I'd run out uh, in the middle of the night and switch the batteries on the camera because they'd only last a couple of hours in those temperatures. And uh, and and to deal with that, well, I'm, I'm running out into the middle of the night. Do I need somebody with me where uh, with a gun handy in case there's a, a bear walking along the yeah. shorefront? And sometimes there is. Uh, last year in the same place that we were at, the same group of hunters uh, had to shoot a grizzly that was being a nuisance in the camp. And so, you know, you, you are... Ever aware of these issues, and you don't sleep well at night. But uh, you well, know, you take home great photos, and you recover afterwards.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. That's we could talk about that forever. That's uh, that stuff's <laughs> amazing. I mean, that we could talk about just the standpoint of, of uh, you know, the photographer's sense of place. You know, taking yourself out of your normal surroundings and putting yourself someplace else kind of starts those creative juices bubbling and, you know, it kind of makes you enthusiastic about going out there and bearing the elements and and doing all that crazy stuff and potentially getting eaten by a grizzly because, A, you don't know when you're going to get back to that place again, and B, you're there and you have your gear and it's, you know, but where you're sitting at home, like I'm in the Bay Area, you're like, you know what, I could go to the Golden Gate Bridge and take a photo, but I'm not. It's going to be there tomorrow, you know, <laughs> so, you, so you never go, all right? So, cool. All right, guys, so let's let's jump into this. Before we continue, I want to um, just give a quick update on what's going on with me. So I'll be at Photo Plus Expo uh, later this month. We're recording this in October of 2014. I'll be there October 29th through November 1st at the Javits Center for Photo for um, uh, Panasonic. I'll be in there both doing Twip-style interviews on stage there. So... If you guys, folks that are listening, are in New York, please stop by and say hello. We'll be giving away a Panasonic GM5, that little tiny mirrorless camera that hopefully Mr. All About the Gear will be reviewing soon. But uh, we'll be giving that away as well as some other cool goodies from, uh, from other partners of TWIP. So definitely come over and check that out. All right, before we jump into this, uh, I'd like to thank our first sponsor for this episode of This Week in Photo, and that's our good friends over at Squarespace. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, just go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP. And as a special promotion for the TWIP audience, Squarespace is giving away a full year of its most premium level service, and that's valued at more than 288 bucks to a randomly selected listener. All you got to do to enter is just tweet, quote, better websites for all, exclamation point, with the hashtag Squarespace TWIP. To be considered. And if you currently have a Squarespace site, post your site URL too, and we might even talk about it on a future episode of This Week in Photo. And remember, Squarespace is constantly improving their platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. Plus, they've got their new metric app for iPhone and iPad that allows you to check your site stats like paid views, unique visitors, and social media follows. And Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and the fee started just eight dollars a month and that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. So you can start your trial. You don't need a credit card to start billing your website now. Then when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, just make sure you use the offer code TWIP to get that 10% off and to show your support for this week in photo. And we here at TWIP want to personally thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. Okay, all right, so here's a quick recap of some of the cool stuff that's happening on the TWIP network this week. This week on the TWIP Network, in our TWIP Talks podcast, I interview Vitaly Kuznetov from Zinfolio about some of the changes happening at the company, as well as their new photographer central directory. And in our street focus show, host Valerie Jardin sits down with street photographer Renzi Ruiz to discuss how he captures Los Angeles through his lens. And coming soon on the TWIP Network, we've got a fantastic travel photography show hosted by Rob Knight. And for those mirrorless photographers out there, Julio Shorio will be launching. Twip small camera very soon, and we're working on a cool new wedding and portrait photography show hosted by Twip's own Bruce Clark, along with Brian Caparicci and celebrity photographer Robert Evans, and much, much more coming up in the wide world of Twip. And remember, you can check out all of our shows over at thisweekinphoto.com/slash subscribe. All right, guys, it's time to do the show. We're gonna break from our regular format a little bit, so. you guys are here, our expert panel of photographers, folks that represent, you know, various perspectives in the world of how to get your data safe and how to replicate it and all that stuff. So the genesis of this this particular episode of TWIP was Topher Martini. I just want to go on record <laughs> go on record to say that gen- this episode episode what are we at, Topher episode three eighty one. 381 is inspired and driven by Topher Martini, and I say that because I did an interview on Twip Talks with Western Digital, Western Digital uh, VP over there about storage, and Topher called me to task, you know, and I'm okay with that. He said, you know, that's sounded a little bit promotional and vendor specific. We should probably do something that is more substantive and egalitarian so I said okay you know I have control I can do that so here we are
2: (laughs) storage is a very big topic and it's very specific to each individual photographer or just general computer users workflow and so it's great to have multiple perspectives and the panel we have today I think can you know dive deep into their workflow or how they got to it and I think we're in for a great discussion
0: I think so too, and I thank you for for uh, for calling that to my attention. Just one quick email is all it took. Topher, and look at us—we're going to hang out talking to thousands of photographers now. <laughs> Here we go. All right, guys. So let's let's do this. Let's jump into it. The first thing I want to talk about is just let's just set the stage. Storage problems, right? So. And you guys, feel free to jump in. This is, Like I said, this is a roundtable discussion, so it doesn't necessarily have to be me asking you questions. Feel free to just you know, interject whenever you want. But the storage problem that I see from my perspective is pretty basic, and that's most photographers don't do it because they don't understand. Either they haven't lost data yet, or they don't think it'll ever happen to them, or they figure they have this big old hard drive in their computer... Maybe I'll duplicate that folder and I'm safe, you know, or something, <laughs> something like that. Tovar, let us kick it off with you. You know, is that what you see, or are there other storage problems out there that we're that we're not addressing?
2: I think you know, first it's understand you as your audience. Is that are you a professional? That this is a business need? Are you an individual creative? That this is a personal passion or hobby? But overall, you know, I treat storage like an insurance policy. Yeah. that you can't go to anybody state farm or otherwise and go get an insurance policy to back up your storage for you. Right. So that's something you need to do for yourself. And one way to go about that I call it the 3Os of storage, online, offline and offsite. If you have your critical storage protected at each one of those places, you're good because if one fails, you can always go to the other. So By that definition, I call online storage something local and easily accessible to your computer. This is usually something fast as well, but it might not have your entire photo library. Offline storage is something that's still accessible. It might be in your home or in your place of business, but it's really meant for local archiving. And then offsite is offsite archiving, that if the first two fail, you can still go get your critical photos or pictures or data uh, from an offsite location. And that way kind of you're focusing on the solution, not as much the product, and I think everybody comes up with their own individual products and workflow, but overall you're coming up with this insurance policy.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to couch it. It is an insurance policy, you know, and who was it? Um, I forget what the community, I think it was Chris Rock or somebody was talking about insurance. He's like, it's not insurance, it's in case, (laughs) (laughs) right? He 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 used another acronym in there, but. He said, it's in case, it's not insurance, it's in case, Mm -hmm. and that's what this stuff is. You hope that you don't, like me with my backup strategy, I hope that I never have to even look at the drive that has my backups on it, but I know it's there, and I sleep better because it's there, but there are holes in my strategy, especially based on the way that you, you know, the the trifecta of storage that you described, Topher, Mm -hmm. I'm missing that cloud piece, so if something happens, I'm in trouble, Right. Totally. And offsite doesn't
2: necessarily mean the cloud. You know, Doug has one of the most awesome storage solutions I've seen, and his is really just a remote backup at a different location. You know, the cloud is a great option for offsite, but it's by no means the only option for offsite.
0: Yeah. Doug, Doug jump into your, your thoughts on storage, the, the main storage problems that we're going to be talking about, and the best way to address those problems. So what, what do you see as... From a photographer standpoint, you know, there's data's data, zeros and ones, of course. So everyone has storage problems, but specifically from photographers, people that generate these priceless images over and over, like Don going up there. He's probably not going to get up there again soon to get shots of the Aurora Borealis. So that image, if he was to lose it, he's pretty much, you know, out of luck. What do you, what do you think? What's the main, the main issue facing us?
1: well it's what tofer said um, this is one of those things where there's no one who's going to bail you out if you don't you know create a solution for yourself no one's going to be able to uh, get you out of a jam and recover these images so to me it's whether you're a pro or you just want to save your family photos you know we don't have shoeboxes in our closets with pictures anymore they're all somewhere yeah. Um. I want to mention a couple of problems that, that aren't quite covered. At least one problem is not covered by Topher's architecture. Uh, this is getting into the weeds a little bit, but I don't want to forget it. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, you know, if you have multiple levels of replication, so you have your primary storage, you have your backup storage, and then you have your remote location storage. Let's say, for example, that a file gets corrupted. What's going to happen is that corrupt file is going to migrate and all the copies of your corrupted file are going to be, sorry, all the copies of your file are going to get corrupted as well. This does happen. Remember I said I was married 43 years? So I have lost disk drives. It's not a matter of if I lose one. I've lost disk drives. I've lost files. Uh, And another problem that is very common is we often delete our own files by mistake and need to get them back. And the, the way... These replicated servers work. If you delete a file, the file is typically, typically not always, deleted on the replicated servers as well. So you know you delete it once. If you don't think about it right away, it's going to be lost by the time you run all these replications. So there's a problem of deletion migration and um, uh, corruption migration that you have to address. And one of the solutions is to, in addition to the other forms of storage, throw in something like Time Machine from Apple, which gives you journaling um, and um, uh, uh, versioning. And if you so have what, versioning, what
0: those? define that. So, what is journaling and what is versioning?
1: Well, uh, Apple went to a journaled file format for OS 10 a while back, many years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, Time Machine uses it, and what will happen is that as you make different versions of a file, those subsequent versions will be stored on your backup device as well. This can take up quite a bit of storage, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it means if you delete a file, that the old version or versions of the file is potentially still available if you've had enough storage on your uh, journaled backup. And uh, for me, that's the most common problem. The most common problem isn't a fire in my home that destroys all my disk drives, and it's not a disk drive failure. It's my screw-ups and needing to recover from those. So I recover from Time Machine more than I recover from anything else.
0: Interesting. Human, human error is the wild card in, in most things, right? Don, Don, what do you think? You jump in on the, storage, the, the main problems as we define this first section of the conversation, storage problems and how to solve them.
3: Oh, I, I think one of the biggest issues that faces a lot of people is convenience. You know, They want to have a solution that works well for them, that they don't have to put a lot of effort in. Maybe it's automated or maybe uh, you know, when, when they're trying to uh, read their information, they don't have to go and, and drag it out of some other location or download it from somewhere. That it's fast, it's easy, and it's backed up. Mm-hmm. and for different people that's going to be a, a different solution. I mean I, I shoot in fairly high volume in the last month I shot uh, over 15,000 images and wow. uh, and so to, to have that available online probably not going to happen because I'm not going to have the bandwidth to get it there. Uh, so I have it all stored here locally and then when I uh, like. W- for every image that I've sort of completed and I've created sort of a, an edited version of it, that gets offloaded into a separate drive that's then either stored in another room in this house and then copied over to another site. You know, if I visit my parents or whatever, I swap drives. Yeah. So there's an offsite uh, version of it uh, in that regard because we're talking terabytes of information here, and it's not feasible to to have some sort of upload strategy for all of that. Um, but I think too, you know, it, it's important to consider, um, as Doug was getting at, a lot of the issues are are not worrying about the the fire or the flood or things that are going to wipe out your data that you have no control over. A lot of the stuff you have to worry about is what's in your control. Um, I know for me, when I'm uh, shooting in the field and I'm going to be away in Eastern Europe, I'm also worried about maybe somebody stealing my camera. And, and what happens if all the photos on my memory cards are, are then gone because I haven't had a chance to back them up. And so there are strategies involved when you're working in the field to create backups and duplicates uh, of images even before you get home as well. And I, I, you know, I found a great one. Um, I, I talked about it last time when I was on uh, Twip. Is I had recently picked up the, uh, the Microsoft the, the Surface Pro 3. Yeah, I got the uh, uh, the 512 gig version of this, and uh, that is enough to back up all of my memory cards on the fly when I'm in the field and edit stuff as I go. And so to have a solution where I can just offload my memory cards, not deleting the memory cards, but now I've got a duplicate somewhere that you know, if my camera gets stolen or broken or uh, you know, mauled by a grizzly bear or anything to that effect, my images still exist somewhere else. And and I think that a lot of people need to have a, at least one copy of everything. I'm going to say get two copies on two yeah. different types of media. You know, If I leave a hard drive sitting in the in the closet for a long enough time it's going to start. Like You shouldn't let a hard drive sit for that amount of time without spinning it up and that kind of yeah. stuff. So you go yeah. back to it you grab your backup because you haven't used it in a while you finally need it and it's not working. And, 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 work. and then what do you do? I mean if that was your your only solution, then you're sunk. So you have to kind of have all of these multiple tiers, uh, like Topher was was suggesting. Uh, and I, I can't stress enough that there's no perfect solution here. You know, everybody's going you, to have a know, different workflow.
0: On top of this, so so the the common denominator that I hear from all three of you guys is it 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 sounds complex. You know, especially from the the layperson and photographers. I know are like you know listen to this in traffic or sitting at work or at the <laughs> gym or whatever, and they're like. You know, that all sounds great, but okay, putting that into practice. I'm no Topher. I'm no Doug. I'm no Don. You know, I I barely have time to, to go do my day job and do all this stuff, and you're talking about this trifecta of storage, and I'm the human, the wild card in the factor, so I really don't want to be doing all this stuff, therefore it's going to fail anyway if it, if it relies on me to be part of the process. Topher, what do you, what do you think? Don brings
2: up a great point too about automation and the more times you have to interact with your storage or storage solution, the less likely you are to do it. And I think a lot of people get stuck in a rut of they you know, get one storage product and implement it but they don't have the total solution so they spend a lot of time kind of re-implementing it or adding something on and I think if you take the time to do the upfront investment very similar to like what Doug's doing, everything should just be running. The only thing you should need to do is, because all storage is perishable, that hard drives, SSDs, they eventually will fail, that all you should have to do is replace the drive. But once you get the workflow down, you don't really need to make that time investment anymore. And I see more and more that business professionals are reaching out to someone like a storage consultant. Someone who comes into your business and sets you up and then you're off to the races and running. Mm -hmm. And I think trying to figure out how that can translate to the individual creative market is really one of the big storage problems for the industry. You know, it's it's definitely a need that photographers want, and no single product can solve it. So I think we're in an interesting part both in the technology and the photography industry.
0: Well, let, let's talk about that. And Don brought up, you know, the the returning to your storage closet to mm-hmm. plug in that old drive and having it not work. You know, I've got notes on, on my my little cheat sheet here. You guys remember, and this is a segue into the hardware part of the discussion. So you guys remember Zip disks? You oh, remember man. Bernoulli drives? Yeah. You remember SciQuest drives? Mm. None of those work anymore, right? <laughs> or do they?
1: I used so, to have all my images on paper
0: tape. Or paper tape, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna say I used to chisel mine up. <laughs> so that said, I mean, if. You, back then, you would have thought, you know, Bernoulli's going to be around forever, iOmega. Remember those guys? iOmega and their Bernoulli drives are going to be around forever. They're perfect. I got a library of all my images or my design projects on Bernoulli drives or SideQuest drives. Poof, now they're gone. Don, what about those folks? You know, they thought back then, and I'm one of them, that that was state-of-the-art. I'm going to build my archiving ethos methodology around these guys, and poof, now they're gone. What, what
3: well I, I, I'd say yes they're gone but I, I wouldn't say that your images are gone if they're on a zip disk I mean you can trap uh, track down a zip drive if you need to yeah. if you're pressured to, to go and find that I mean I remember hearing recently a, a team of uh, of independent uh, engineers went back through some old NASA recordings that were made on tape uh, uh, from some of the uh, the early lunar orbiters, and uh, the images were sent back and recorded on these tapes. And they rebuilt the entire infrastructure to reread these tapes with modern technology, and had absolutely fantastic results. I, I find it hard to believe that if you stored it on a particular type of media and that media becomes obsolete that it's gone. It just becomes very difficult and inconvenient to access. Uh, Certain types of media, you know, might degrade over time. You know, if you leave uh, a a burned CD on your windowsill in the bright sunlight, try to read it again the next day, you might have trouble. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some things are not as as permanent as you might like them, which, again, goes to my idea of having many multiple copies of it. But as Topher said, and, and as I think we all agree, Photographers, in a general sense, are lazy about this stuff. I mean, you want it automated, you don't want to interact with it, you want something easy that you can just sort of set it and forget it. and you know, for for me, my solution to that regard is I use a, a a Drobo unit here. I have one of their five bay models, and I'm actually looking at buying a, an additional one uh, so that I can have a, sort of a, a backup on that. The benefit of this for me, like to have everything in one spot. If I need more storage, just pop out a drive, pop in another one. Uh, if a drive dies, pop it out, pop in another one. It makes it easy. And you know, there's a lot of other solutions similar to Drobo that that, that do very similar things. Um, And that's a big market, and they're targeting photographers primarily, and and other creatives that are dealing with high volume media. Um, Ease of use, I think, is that key, and uh, to find one solution, uh, we've agreed we're not going to find it, but depending on what you're after, this works for me, and then I take all my finished images and I load them off somewhere else, my raw files stay in this one spot that has some redundancies. The house burns down. I might lose anything that I haven't gotten to edit yet, and so there is a risk in that. Um, but you know, it's a risk that that I'm I've been taking, and uh, I shouldn't be. That's why I need another backup. Yeah. So a novel idea that I had thought of a while ago is, um, you know, we, we've got some neighbors nearby and our, our Wi-Fi signals intersect. What's to stop me from uh, bringing over, you know, some some homemade cookies to my neighbor and saying, hey, can can you let me stick this little box in your basement somewhere? Hmm. Uh, and then have, have stuff backed up off-site but, you know, relatively nearby if I need it in case I get robbed or something. Now, there's all sorts of creative ideas that you can come up with based on your own scenario. Hmm. Um, but uh, I, I even forget what question you asked me, Frederick. Yeah, no, no, it was just,
0: it was just about, and I want to transit over Doug too, because Doug, we, the the question was about taking, you know, that closet full of old stuff, you know, your Bernoullis, your side quests, and all that. How do you safeguard? And admittedly, my the positioning of the question was a little constructed, right? Because there's there's you know, there's then and now, and there's of course there's the time in between. So you're it's an iterative process. As companies go away and new technology show up, you move your data. So it's not a oh crap, you know, omega has gone. What do I do with my data? It's now 2014. You're not that person. So Doug, I wanted to hear from you from your standpoint. You've been doing this for a while. You used to 43 years. You've been married, and you've seen the trajectory of data moving from format to format and now finally ending up on SSD drives and who knows what's next right so how did how did you do that migration how did it happen over time
1: well what you're describing is the difference between offline storage and online storage offline Mm -hmm. storage says it's on media that's stuck in a closet yeah online means it's alive and active so if I have eight terabytes of remote storage that I'm backing up to every night if I need new technology, I'm going to simply migrate those bits to that new technology. That storage will always be using what is essentially state-of-the-art media, uh, and that's the solution to that. So, you know, the thing is, you, you know, if you back stuff up to CDs or iomega zip drives or something like that, then yes, you suffer this media aging, both in terms of technology and, you know, lifespan of the media itself. But if it's online, then you're going to be able to keep it up to date as technology changes.
0: Yeah, and when you and say that, online, you mean online and accessible, not necessarily online in the cloud. Right?
1: Correct, correct. Right. And I and I think that, that there are a couple of things that are worth discussing separately, perhaps, Frederick, and that mm-hmm. is one is what are the solutions for offline storage? I'm sorry, not offline, remote storage. How do you mm-hmm. store data remotely because there are many ways to do that? Yeah. And the other questions are really to understand some of the issues around redundancy. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the strengths and weaknesses of redundancy. I'll let you, you know, decide how you want to go around the, the room here with that. But I, I think those are two separate questions that we should address.
0: Okay. All right. We'll dive into that after, after the break. Um, uh, I wanted to leave this on this last piece. I wanted to jump into Topher again so, and talk about... So we talked about hardware. We talked about the problem. Um, On the software side of things or the format side of things, Adobe, you know, creative monolith Adobe understood that there's this issue between image formats, especially when it applies to to photographers, right? So they created this concept of DNG, the digital negative format, which essentially is a wrapper around your raw data that is open sourced that, that any camera manufacturer or software vendor can write and read to, right? So there thereby, hopefully the, the idea is you have a raw file made by camera or manufacturer A that goes away 10 years from now, you have that DNG file which survives and stuff can still read. Is that a viable way to, to kind of safeguard on the software side of things?
2: It can be for some people but it definitely is not for everyone. Uh, yeah. you know, DNG, think of it like a layered approach, that the, the first layer is the basic decoding of a raw file, and then you continue to go up to the next layer, might be more advanced features, and the top layer is what they would call proprietary decoding. Mm-hmm. Uh, companies like Canon, Nikon, Lytro, others, you know, all have things that are proprietary to them that they can't open source, and so DNG was a great option to, to make that decoding uh, universal, and to also encapsulate the original raw file inside the DNG. So they did kind of future-proof it. The downside is if you encapsulate that raw file inside the DNG, you know, as megapixels continue to increase, what was a 50 megabyte file is now a 100 megabyte file because it's two files in one. So if you have the storage to to guarantee and future-proof against that, that's a great option. Um, But I tend to do two separate files, keep the original file whole, and then move to DNG as well. Uh, DNG works great in the Adobe ecosystem, but because third parties implement DNGs and in subtle and different ways, um, it's not a universal standard there either. Yeah,
0: Doug, I want to take this to you from your you know putting on your all about the gear hat, right? So, in working with all these different cameras, a lot of them have been mirrorless cameras um, over the last couple of episodes, only because that's where the innovation seems to be happening, happening mostly. But when I think of the DNG format, um, I know, and correct me if I'm wrong with these mirrorless cameras a lot of the magic that they do it's a tight marriage between the lens and the sensor and the camera body and the software within the camera can correct for deficiencies that are in the lens inherently so you as the end user never see that this lens is screwed up on this area because it corrects it every time it gets into the, uh, into the processor or the sensor how does something like that play into the world of DNG? right so if it's a dng if you take that image you convert it to a dng format now it's kind of universal and you know do those special that special bit of data that allows your image to be automatically software corrected does all that go away and now you're in the, you end up with a distorted image or what
1: well, I, in terms of the traditional types of sensors, I don't think you're going to have a problem with that because uh, they map reasonably well from their proprietary, not proprietary format, but from their native format to DNG. There are certainly cameras, I would guess, Topher the Lytro probably uh, can't be converted to DNG. Um, am I correct?
2: It's a light field image, correct? Not yes, image, it's
1: a correct. light field image and that's something that uh, I doubt the people at Adobe didn't take into consideration when they created the DNG format. Uh, <laughs> they same did not with, have
0: a time machine, Doug. <laughs> yeah, same with the,
1: the Foveon sensor. I don't think you can make a um, take, can't take a Sigma image from a Foveon sensor and put it into DNG as well. Correct. Personally, I've stopped using DNG. Um, it's As Topher said, it's not smaller. Uh, and I don't have a feeling that Adobe Adobe has published it. It's a somewhat open standard. Um, you know, Leica uses DNG as their native format, but um, uh, I'm I'm happier keeping it now in the original RAW file format. Yeah. Uh, Sony, Nikon, Canon. Uh, I don't think that these formats are any riskier than putting them into DNG.
0: Yeah, yeah. Don, do you have anything to add to oh, that? By the, by
1: the way, okay. it also with a 36 megapixel sensor or something like that, you would have you spend a lot of time converting to DNG, and I'm not sure that's worthwhile. Yeah,
3: yeah, and I want to echo that sentiment as well, Doug. Uh, I, when I first uh, started into all of this, I thought DNG would be a great solution for future-proofing. I mean, this is what the conversation is about, is to make sure that you can recover and, and read your images, say, 10, 20 years from now. Uh, and I, I thought at first, okay, DNG seems to be working towards that goal, but I, I got to thinking, you know, Looking at the uh, the software, whether it be Lightroom or Camera Raw or any other software from any other manufacturer, I haven't ever seen anybody remove support from a camera that was previously supported, mm. and I don't I don't think that they ever will. And maybe if they do at some point, that'll be a concern. But right now, it seems like it's zero risk. If it's supported, it will be continued to be supported. Now, otherwise, you know, it's it's bad for customer service, and it doesn't take up a whole lot of space. Uh, at this point, I mean, if we're 20, 30 years down the road, maybe they'll start, uh, you know, canceling support for the original Canon Digital Rebel or something like that. Yeah. And then you just go back to uh, older software and convert that to DNG if you need to at that time, if that's an open standard still. So. I, I I think I I agree with you, Doug, that uh, DNG doesn't necessarily solve any problems right now. Um, But if it does in the future, then it's a tool that I'm glad Adobe's created and they're continually updating.
0: So it it sounds like what you're saying, if I'm reading the tea leaves correctly, that DNG
3: might be a cure in search of a disease that no one has yet. Is that right? I, I think, I think you're, you're kind of on the mark with that. Now, there are some things that DNG does. So, like, if I make changes to a RAW file in Camera Raw, instead of having a sidecar file that has all of those changes, that gets embedded into the DNG file. And so there are certain benefits if I want to send that to somebody else in a creative workflow, but that's not my creative workflow. So it, it doesn't really impact me very well.
0: Yeah. I'm you're making doctors, someone like, from Adobe on um, at some point to deep dive into DNG and what they're doing there, So just so that we're not glossing over it. Tover, were you going to say something? So, Don makes a great point too about DNG is kind of an additional
2: failure recovery option. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about storage here that you have your first storage, second storage, third storage, et cetera. That I think most people work with whatever your native raw decoding is, whether it be proprietary software or otherwise. But if a camera comes no longer supported or if it's, you know, too new and not supported yet by your application, DNG is a great failure recovery option there. Yeah. Love
3: it. I, I remember, actually, that's a good point. When I first bought, uh, I think it was my 5D Mark II at the time, uh, Adobe hadn't yet updated uh, Lightroom and, and that software, but there was a beta version of the DNG converter. So for a sh- short period of time, uh, in order to edit my images properly, I converted them all to DNG so that they would be compatible with the software that I was using because the software hadn't yet uh, come uh, come up to that, uh, that, that, that newer specification. And so, yeah, th- there are a few isolated cases where, you know what, it, it's going to be useful if you run out and buy a camera on day one you're probably not going to have software support but recording this there is a uh, a release candidate of the newest DNG converter out there Mm -hmm. and so all the latest cameras are supported in that even if it's not supported in Lightroom there's your solution so there are some isolated cases where it could be handy Handy some photographers
0: are saying some photographers are going the opposite direction they're saying you know what this raw stuff was a fad and I'm shooting everything in JPEG What what do you guys say to that? I mean, that's a way to future-proof, right? So JPEGs presumably aren't going away anytime soon. Tover, should people just say, you know what, RAW is over, I'm just going to shoot JPEG, fine.
2: You know, if you're a snapshot photographer, absolutely great. If you want to make money with your images or preserve that opportunity, I mean, everything we're talking about here is preserving, backup, archiving. JPEG is the absolute opposite end of that. It's you don't care about any of that. So that's a a great option there. And quickly, sorry to segue back just to what Dom was talking about. Yeah, go for it. One other thing is, you know, we're all kind of the elephant in the room is Apple Aperture is going away and Mm -hmm. the version of photos that's coming up for all the new cameras that will be coming out, you can convert those to DNG and at least continue to use them in Aperture, even if they never update the software. So right. I think it's a way you can future-proof that way as well. But to your comment about JPEG, it's, you know, you get what you pay for, and mm-hmm. if uh, because you're keeping such limited information from the original image, it leaves you no versatility to do future edits in the future.
0: And it's scary, right? Like, Don, for example, you, you were up there shooting, like the northern light shot you just showed, if you had shot that in JPEG it probably still would have looked stunning and amazing but you have far less data right to to play around with and you're not going back there anytime soon so why not capture Everything.
3: (laughs) And I I like to push pixels. You know, I like to try and get the most I can out of an image, especially in a shot like that. uh, You're trying to, uh, you're trying to set the camera for one exposure, uh, knowing that the Northern lights might get brighter and darker over that time. And so I know in post-processing, I can boost up those shadows and I can drag down those highlights far more than a JPEG would let me. Now, when I'm running a camera on a time-lapse all night, I need big memory cards. I've got like a 256 gig uh, compact flash card here and those don't come that cheap but memory is getting cheaper and storage is getting cheaper every single day Uh, I would rather have more information than less and I know most photographers will agree with me uh, if you are the kind of person that wants to get in there and really push things to their limits if you're just like I've done a couple of event photography shoots where uh, I've been a hired photographer working for somebody else and they request that the image be submitted in JPEG format and so I oblige Mm. Uh, and just because of their volume and their workflow there's no editing going on these are just going uh, up online to a to a service and the conversion from raw to JPEG at that point would be a hindrance so again there are certain workflows for everybody uh, but for the kind of person that wants to make a beautiful fine art print you wanna have the greatest color depth you wanna be able to play around with your shadows as much as you can especially recovering highlights depending on what your exposure is going to be set to. And raw formats allow you to do that. They take up maybe twice as much storage, or maybe even more if you're converting them to DNG. But you know, for all of the, the images that I had taken, I could have taken 5,000 more on this last trip, and I wouldn't have run out of space. So uh, you just prepare yourself for it, and that's the workflow you have. Doug, do you have anything to add to that? What do you, what do you well, think?
1: Well, uh, Topher and uh, Don are absolutely right. The thing to remember is that JPEG is like MP3. It's a final format. It's not intended to be decoded, tweaked, and re-encoded. JPEG is something you go to when you're done. For example, a RAW file uh, doesn't have a color space yet. There's no sRGB, Adobe RGB, ProPhoto. That's something that you don't commit to until you go down to a 16-bit or an 18-bit color space. Mm -hmm. Uh, And So you have the ability to edit and process and you stay in either RAW or an HDR format or a wide gamut color space like ProPhoto, until you're ready to make the image ready for viewing. And that's the point at which you say, I'm going to make a JPEG, I'm going to do sRGB or Adobe RGB, or I'm going to CMYK because I'm printing. JPEG is a format to use only at the end of your workflow. If pushing the button is the end of your workflow, fine. Otherwise, it's really not appropriate.
0: I remember, I remember when the whole JPEG versus RAW debate was going on several years ago, and uh, the analogy that I used to use all the time was baking a cake, right? So you could, a JPEG represents a baked cake. It's done. You know, you're not going to unbake the cake or change any ingredients in that cake. Mm-hmm. RAW represents all the ingredients sitting on the counter <laughs> to make that cake so that you can make different versions of that cake ad nauseum and keep going And, you know, kind of be creative there. JPEGs already baked. Yeah, I mean, I'll take frosting on it, but it's still baked.
1: Yeah, I'll take this A6000 out to do street photography, and I'll set it to RAW plus JPEG. Mm -hmm. I'll set the JPEGs to black and white. And I'll use the JPEGs if I like them just the way they're out of camera. If not, I go back to the RAW file.
3: Yeah. And, and yeah. this brings up an interesting point too, Doug, is in, in that particular workflow you're immediately creating two files for every image. Mm-hmm. In my workflow I create a raw file when I'm shooting and then when I'm done editing I'll usually create a TIFF file as sort of a master that I work with. And then from there I will, uh, you know, that that's good for print and that's good for anything else if I'm going to make a print, but if I'm putting it on the web. I might uh, make a a higher resolution JPEG to put on social media and a lower resolution one if I'm sending it in emails. And by this point, I have four or five different versions of the exact same photograph. Uh, And so I'm curious to see uh, how people deal with that Topher, I I, I want to ask you, um, when you have like many multiple versions of the same photograph, uh, like how do you organize all of that? Because this is something I've struggled with for quite a while.
2: Totally, and I think there's a separation of when you're shooting in the field versus when you're back home or in your studio. In the field, I shoot like Doug where I do raw plus JPEG, and I actually edit and cull off of those JPEG images because I don't want to overburden my laptop to have to process you know, hundreds or thousands of files. But JPEG is a temporary file format. You know, I treat it as an in the field curating. I don't do anything with it after that. And similar to your approaches, once you get back home in the studio, download everything, put it into your asset management, whether it be Lightroom, Aperture, third party, et cetera, and then always work from that master. As long as you have the versions, you can always recreate the data file Um, So I always make sure I have either the XMPP sidecar data, the RAW file, so that way you can always recreate an image. But once you output it, it's gone. I never archive it. Yeah.
0: You know, I'd say, I'd add on to another workflow would be, or a workflow uh, usage would be mobile, right? So when I shoot, like, especially when I was in Paris a couple of weeks ago, a couple months ago, I was shooting RAW plus JPEG and I was shooting JPEG specifically because I was transferring those JPEGs over to my phone or my tablet but I also wanted the raw file for later tweaking and you know fine-tuning but immediately on the street there I wanted the JPEG can't transfer um, to my knowledge, a at least not quickly, a raw file over to your phone, tweak it and send it out to Instagram or Facebook or whatever. So that J, the JPEG sidecar was specifically for social sharing, whereas the backup of all the raw data is still on the card. And Like Don was saying, storage is relatively cheap comparatively, so you're not really losing anything by doing that. You're only gaining stuff,
2: right? Mm-hmm. It's two independent workflows. You have yeah. in the field workflow and you know all drains should flow to the ocean. No matter what you're doing in the field, eventually you want your raw file and all the ability to output wherever you want.
0: I agree completely. All right guys, before we continue with this next segment, um I want to thank our next sponsor for this episode of this week in photo, and that's our friends over at FreshBooks. freshbooks.com. dot com. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy cloud solution helping millions of small business owners save time invoicing and get paid faster. You know, as photographers, we capture moments, feelings, vistas, all that cool stuff, even perspectives, but what we don't Think to capture sometimes is the income picture of our businesses. You know, income, your expenses, your billable time, all that stuff. And I think one of the reasons why we don't do that is because capturing all those things is boring. That's a simple fact. It's just boring doing that. We'd rather be out taking pictures. Now, thankfully, FreshBooks offers small business owners and freelancers a way to keep track of their time and money without breaking your workflow or lifestyle. You can invoice your clients, you can do it in mere minutes. Expenses can be automatically imported so you don't have to lift a finger. You can track billable time. Basically, they take the hassle out of running your photography business by joining millions of freelancers and entrepreneurs using FreshBooks to run their businesses. So, really cool stuff. And This Week in Photo and basically anything I do personally business-wise is run using FreshBooks. And I've been doing it for several years now, and I can't tell you how much time it has saved me in terms of headache and following up with clients and billing and getting paid, all that stuff. You know their tagline is it 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 says, you know, let me read it here. It says it helps you save time invoicing and get paid faster. And that's exactly what it did for did for me. I had a stack of things that I had to do, you know, people to reach out to to, you know bug about getting paid or all these different things and once i imported everything into freshbooks it basically said okay frederick yeah, we got this and they took it over and i get paid you know and it just works i don't think i would be able to run my business as efficiently as i do without FreshBooks. So definitely check them out. And FreshBooks, our sponsor for this episode, is free to try for This Week in Photo listeners. All you got to do is go to freshbooks.com twip and enter twip in the how did you hear about us section to start your free trial. So get out there, capture some beautiful moments and your business finances. Just go to freshbooks.com slash twip and enter twip in the how did you hear about us section. Okay guys, let's jump into this next segment. This one is critical, right? And Topher, I believe you brought this up initially, and Doug, you touched on it as well, and probably you too, Don. We we're talking about the whole idea of that trifecta, and one piece or one leg in that tripod, if you will, is cloud, right? Mm-hmm. And which is essentially servers that live someplace else <laughs> other other than on-site. So there's, there's a number of ways to do that, right? We've got Dropbox, we've got Brute Force FTP, we've got um, Google Drive, we've got Box.net, we, I mean it goes on and on and on. All these guys are vying for our data to put it in the cloud and then you know there's services like Crash Plan, it goes on and on and on. So Doug I want to I start with you on this. So looking at these cloud services and photographers saying okay I hear you guys I need to have a cloud-based workflow but there are a myriad of choices out there. Analysis paralysis sets in. You don't do anything.
1: What would you say to those guys? You know, with, with regard to the cloud, I think if you are not a photographer who shoots a lot, yeah. I think if you have, let's say, less than a terabyte of images that you need to store, some of the online services might be very good for you. There are three kinds of situations out there. You've got some cloud services that will accept a hard drive to sort of prime the pump with your initial stuff. You can mail it to them. What's that?
0: You can ship it to them.
1: Just yeah, to you can mail them a drive. Uh, there are some that will do the same on the reverse. If you need to recover, they'll burn a drive it to you and ship to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're gonna upload a terabyte of data, you're depending on your speed and the speed of the service, you're probably looking at a couple of months of real time that it takes to upload a terabyte. Um, at least six or seven weeks. So you need to think about that. Now, if you're shooting, like I think all three of us, all four of us are, you know, we're talking about multiple terabytes, Mm -hmm. and I don't really think that at this point with internet connectivity that the cloud services are really up to that. And I want to, I want all of my stuff to be offline. Yeah. Or online, depending on how you describe that. That's why I developed a different solution. I tested a lot of the services myself. I'm also concerned about the viability of some of those companies. What happens if they lose my files?
3: Exactly. You know, and what happens if they go out of business?
1: Yeah. 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 So there's no there are no guarantees. You know, Amazon Web Services has been very reliable for me for a lot of other types of projects, uh, but it's not cheap. Uh, when you get around to it. So we'll put a link in the show notes to uh, the blog post I did on the Twit blog where I went into quite a bit of detail on my current solution, um, which is a remote uh, backup. Uh, I don't know if you want me to go into any of that or not. We can wait.
0: Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, That's, so, that's what
1: this episode's so, about. This will be good for the other guys too who can respond to this. I for, for off-site backup, I used to have a rotating set of USB drives. And at the end of every month... I would make two copies of everything in my Lightroom catalog. One copy would go to a storage locker a couple of miles away. The other copy I'd keep here because of the problem I described, where I, I tend to delete things by accident. Okay? And there were two problems with that: is one, it was a, sort of a pain in the ass to do this every month, and the other is I could potentially be a month out of date. So if the fire happens and I lose everything, uh, I could have 30 days of images lost. So. I decided to investigate opportunities. I studied some of the online services, gave up on them for a variety of reasons that people could read about in the blog post. But I ended up creating a server that, I have a local backup server, and I have an exact mirror of that, a replica server, that actually I put at a friend's house. And it's sitting in the friend's house, and these two servers replicate all the time, every once in a while. I check to make sure that the replication is running. I do something very important, which I test recovery, if you have backup services, you must be sure that you can, in fact, recover an image. Yeah. And this thing just keeps chugging. I'm at most 24 hours out of date. Uh, so uh, the only thing that's at risk is my last 24 hours of images. So no. it's a real good solution. It's not for the faint of heart, although there are companies like Western Digital that are making this easier and easier depending on how much storage you have. Yeah.
3: I'm I'm curious, Doug. You say that you've got the, the server set up and it's replicating from another server. There's software that's making this happen. What software are you using?
1: Uh, well, the actual software, underlying software, is the Linux rsync command, rsync okay. utility. Oh, uh, no, but you it's,
0: get really geeky on us. Yeah, right? the the boxes.
1: I ended up, Linux. Yeah, I ended up using boxes that are made by a company named Synology. Mm-hmm. Uh, after doing quite a bit of research. Um and uh, I've had some problems with Drobo and I don't think Drobo even does remote replication at this. They
3: don't. I don't think so.
1: Yeah. So um, I'm real happy with the Synology boxes, but I'm only about three months into it. Uh, but so far they've done everything I've wanted to do, and uh, they've been very secure, uh, and everything's working quite well. Now, well Doug, Topher,
0: you, Topher, I want to I want to flip it over to you too. So you're an ex appler right? So as a, as I am. Um, the, you know, Apple with the advent of the next operating system, Yosemite's coming out really, really soon, and we've got iOS 8. One of the features in there is, what what's it called, Tover? the iCloud Drive, or whatever uh, that iCloud is. iCloud Drive, yeah. Yeah, iCloud Drive, um, which presumably makes should make it simple for a lot of this data storage type stuff to happen or is it for us? Is it for photographers?
2: Well I think you know Doug brought up a great point that's the size of the data that you're storing remotely. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. iCloud Drive is great until you hit your limit, uh, so there's two important limits with online backup. The data you're actually backing up and the bandwidth it takes to get it there. You know, here in California, depending on your internet service provider, you might be limited to 100 gigabytes, 500 gigabytes, a terabyte per month. So it's infeasible, no matter what your remote online solution is, to continually back up that much data. So I kind of had a follow-up question for Doug: Is you know what you've basically set up is a private cloud, which is something very you know it's a hot topic in the storage industry right now. Do you find the performance and reliability of your private cloud is better than the online storage providers?
1: Well, remember, most of the data transfer is leaving my home. Mm -hmm. It's not coming in. My upload speed to the Internet is 10 or 11 megabits per second max. Um, That's my throttle regardless of whether it goes to an online service or my remote server. So that's my limiting factor, right? So that upload speed translates to about 15 minutes per gigabyte. So if Mm -hmm. I come home with a full 8-gigabyte card, it's going to take two hours for me to back that up remotely. Mm-hmm. But this runs in the background, I never see it, it's not a problem. It does it does max out my upload bandwidth from here, but that's not a problem for me. Mm-hmm. Again, it doesn't it doesn't matter whether I'm doing a personal cloud or a cloud service. My limit is that that upload speed.
2: Correct, and so in addition to the the bandwidth, the rate of performance, there's also the data bandwidth. Uh, Comcast uh, famously had a 500 gigabyte upload limit for a lot of people—that both downloads and uploads it could only be 500 gigabytes per month—and I think that's where a lot of these backup solutions really felt the squeeze. Uh, thankfully, a lot of these ISPs have you know done away with that limit, but. Um, I'm kind of interested to see like you know your performance of going point to point between your location and the remote location versus the cloud backup it would be interesting to see the benchmark between yeah
1: and again my my friend's house he's also on Comcast Mm -hmm. he's got 55 megabit download so I'm only using 20 percent of his speed and it's going off hours and Comcast has never enforced that limit for me I've done multiple terabytes per month Mm-hmm. Um, actually, no, because I can't do multiple terabytes a month. But uh, I've certainly done more than 500 gigs a month and not had a problem. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so what I about, think... What about... Have you guys heard of... Um, there's, a, there's a Mac app. I believe it's Mac or Windows, etc. cetera, um, but it's called BitTorrent Sync. hmm Have you guys heard of that? I mean... It- you know, Don, have you heard of that, by the way?
3: Uh, yeah, I've heard of it, and I, and I looked into it as well, but uh, I, again, it comes down to that same idea that you have to push things out there. Uh, you have you have to get things out. Like right here in Canada, I've got a pretty high-level internet package, about as high as I can get, and I still have a terabyte uh, of, of bandwidth per month uh, that, that, that I can utilize. There is a limit on that. I doubt that I'd ever hit it, but my upload speed is going to be that limiting factor, regardless if, uh, if I'm using Torrent Sync or... A private solution like Doug or one of the uh, sort of the ready-in-place solutions, um, I, I don't have the opportunity to... Th- like if I'm photographing snowflakes for a day, uh, mm-hmm. I might come home with 100 gigabytes of data on that one shoot. And how do I deal with that? Well, I have to store it locally because there's no way that I'm going to have the amount of throughput needed to get that somewhere else. -hmm. Yeah. It's
0: tough for that's the that's when your photographers are the most vulnerable, right? Vulnerable. When they come back from a shoot, like Don comes back with a you know pocket full of snowflakes and Mm -hmm. you need to back those up and the time between getting home and getting them somewhere else, that's the point of failure, correct? Absolutely, and like what we're talking about in this whole show
2: is kind of the layers of redundancy that from whether it be online, offline, offsite, or what happens if my offsite storage solution goes away, you want to continually protect yourself against levels of failure you know Doug brought up another great one with versioning and deletion you know those are additional layers to protect for you know in this case of when your data is unprotected i define that to mean that you don't have it in three places you might have it in one you might have it in two but until you have data in three places i don't consider it protected and so when you come home from that shoot You know, even before getting home, I often download the photos to a little battery backup hard drive. There's, you know, like Don mentioned, to a laptop. There's great ways that you can protect your data even before you get home. And I think that's the first point of backup.
0: Yeah, and I want to dive into that a little deeper. Um, You know, in the notes here, I've got personal cloud and portable. I want to kind of merge those together. So, like, Mm -hmm. when you talk about the personal cloud you know the the impersonal cloud per se would be like the Dropbox and all those those guys services that you're paying for um, and I I put personal cloud in the category of these drives that like Doug for example you have drive at someone's house that's a cloud right it's a server somewhere else that you have access to or one of these Western Digital or Drobo type devices that you attach to a network and you can then access them remotely which I mean, you know, I'm I'm trying to get my brain around which which is better, you know. And a lot of this is a lot of this is personal, right? Because I want I need to add this cloud piece to my workflow. Do I go the Doug K route and co-locate a server with a friend or a, a drive or something with a friend and go that way, or do I do I take as much of my data as I can and ship it off to you know one of these cloud services like uh, you know what is it? I forget their name of, it, but there's a Million, I send my drive over there, and they upload it to their servers, and I'm set there. I don't know. Like in the case of Don Komarechka, it sounds like it's a treadmill that's running faster than you can run, right? So even if I do put my data up there, I'm going to generate a lot more data than I can upload. I'm back in the same boat again and being out of sync. What what, what do you guys think?
1: Well, I think, uh, again, I think if you've got, substantially less than a terabyte, I think an online service is probably a good solution for you. Just be prepared that it's going to take you a while to put your initial data up there. Mm. But, you know, the main thing is to get it to a different location. And even if you use the technique I was using, which was to back it up to just some inexpensive USB drives and put them somewhere away from your home, that is... So that's 95% of what you need to do. I mean, you've really done a very good job. Everything that you put on those drives, if you keep backing them up on a regular basis, uh, that's going to get the stuff out of your house, protect you against the fire or the other major disasters that you might have. Um, you know, By the way, don't don't depend on redundant disks as being your issue because you know the, the disk drive enclosure could fail you could yeah. have a software error that erases the files on all your redundant disks so this is you know this is a, a little bit raid raid came out because inexpensive disks were unreliable particularly unreliable 20 years ago and so we have raid 1 we have raid 5 we have all the raids in between But uh, it is not a panacea, and don't think that just because you have redundant disks that you have real redundancy, you don't.
0: And and I, want, I, want to, I want to talk I, about the, the RAID stuff. Who was who that? Was that you, Topher? You to jump in?
3: No, no mm-hmm. I was gonna jump in because I, I wanted to make a comment about uh, the, the reliability of these disks and, and as the the capacities get higher and higher, I think we're up to six terabyte uh, disk drives now, mm-hmm. I mean the manufacturers build in a fault rate that there's error correcting code that is constantly running through these drives because they're not reading the data properly. They are pushing the limits of being able to read them accurately in the best case scenario and so if things start to degrade from that point then you can have data loss more easily now than I think you could have a few years ago if you're going for those very very dense drives and so Again, this echoes, don't have one copy, don't have two copies, have three copies uh, of just about everything and try to keep things running and accessible and easy. Doug, your solution is the one that I use as well where you know, you've know you got drives that you throw off-site. Uh, you know, whenever we, we, we go to the parents or relatives, hey, here's a drive, stick this in your closet, and next time I go and visit them, I, I, I swap it out and what have you. That's a lot of effort, and that takes you know my, my memory here to say, okay, well, I'm I'm going for Thanksgiving to uh to to my relatives' place. Let's go and drop them off a the drive. I'm usually thinking about other things at the time, and mm-hmm. and I, I can't like write that on my calendar and schedule that. You know, there's not going to be any notification beeping for me to do this. Uh, and that's the point of failure. And so if you can eliminate that like you have, Doug, that's fantastic. My my solution right now that I'm thinking of is within a, a Wi-Fi access of my house to have something in the basement of a neighbor's place that can be easily backed up with a fast mm. Wi-Fi connection. Uh, and that might work for me, but everybody's going to be different. So um, I just wanted to chime in about the failure rates of these drives and don't depend on a drive being what it says it should be.
0: And I want to dive into that. After the break, I want to talk about the, you know, specifically what RAID is and what it was designed for and all that stuff. Before we do that, I want to talk about portable, though. So, you know, all of you guys travel, right? And you're out, you're running around with your portable computer, um, your mobile devices, etc. You get back to your hotel room. What do you guys plug in, right? you're not keeping everything on the internal drive of your computer, what are you plugging into your computer to kind of offload off of your images from the SD card or CF card onto the, the external media? Topher, you wanna go first?
2: Yeah, sure, I have a little portable hard drive and we can put the actual you know, model in the show notes. It's uh, by Hypershop, I believe, called The Color Space and it's mm-hmm. a little SD and CF card reader. It's a battery powered hard drive you plug the card in, you say import all, and that way it guarantees everything on the card is backed up. Cool. And when traveling, I try to never take a laptop. I find that when I bring a laptop, I'm trying to edit photos in the field rather than take new photos. The only thing I want to do is back up the photos, maybe do a basic curation, and so I've switched over to the iPad for that. And ah, devices, so cool. You know, uh, you can get Wi-Fi hard drives for your iPad and, you know, to Doug's point earlier about going to Iceland, that's about, you know, four and a half pounds that you're no longer carrying around every day. And that is huge in travel.
0: Or Uh, trying to keep safe, right? Four and a half pounds that you're not worried about the maid taking, right?
2: You're outrunning the bear, as Don would say. But... (laughs) (laughs) You know, but I think, you know, those are the types of solutions that you can't guarantee on internet connectivity when traveling, so some of these remote solutions like off-site backup, I only use at home. I never yeah. rely on them on the road.
0: Yeah, I love that. That See, that, I'm I'm almost there, Topher, to the point where I feel okay. I mean, I have a MacBook Air, so it's not that heavy, mm-hmm. so... I'm almost to the point where I don't need to you know I can be topher and just take the the, the Mac or the uh, the iPad with me. And as a nod back
2: to the original kind of the Western digital presentation here, they have a great product that fits that need of this Wi-Fi hard drive that you can access to multiple product or multiple devices. And you know a product does not make a solution. And so it's yeah. important to know that you need additional solutions to to flesh that out.
0: Topher, do you see a day when you will leave the iPad at home and just use your your iPhone Plus Six Plus? You know, I, so if
2: you've held the Six Plus, you know it's an iPad. Um, <laughs> it's an iPad uh, Nano. Yeah. So you know, I think that that you know, a seven-inch tablet is kind of the sweet spot because mm-hmm. when you're doing multi-touch gestures and curating photos, that makes sense. Uh, doing it all on your phone, you know, probably too much. You know, when yeah. you talk about like data redundancy. If you're doing everything off of your phone and then your phone dies, you're done. So having an iPhone and an iPad or a smartphone and tablet is a good backup solution too.
0: Redundancy. Don Komareczka, what about you? Portable solutions. You're out there out bears. Assuming you successfully, you know, you're faster than the slowest guy in the pack and you make it, you make it back to your room, what hard drives do you use to, uh, to export your stuff onto?
3: Well, as I mentioned earlier, I've just taken a liking to the uh, to the Surface Pro 3 because I, I don't, like when I'm out in the field like that, I don't see myself shooting more than uh, the capacity of storage on that particular device. And so that becomes my in the field backup when I've got that with me. It's smaller than a laptop and lighter and it can fit in my bag, doesn't add a lot of weight to the equation. Now, if I want to get in there and do some editing, I can, although I rarely do. Um, well, when I was up there, there was, no interne- there was no connection of any kind whatsoever except for an emergency satellite phone. So, I mean, you're sort of in an isolated environment at that time. But uh, I, I like to have a second copy with me. I use big memory cards. Like I've got 256 and 128 uh, gigabyte memory cards so that they stay in the camera. And I'm never worried about having memory cards juggling around in a camera bag or in my pockets and getting lost because, again, that's a point of human failure where I might lose something and, uh, and, and I want to mitigate that as much as possible. My camera is held very close uh, uh, close to me at all times when I'm doing that kind of traveling for theft reasons and what have you, and it's camouflaged when it's in its bag and that kind of thing. So I, I, if the camera gets stolen, at least I have a backup somewhere else, but the images stay in the camera. They stay somewhere else. There's no extra cards or any other devices floating anywhere else just to keep things as concise and simple for me. Uh, and, and again, it's the simplicity that has to be the deciding factor here.
0: Yeah, the human error element again, right, Doug? Doug, two pieces of this question I want to I want to throw at you. So, portable drive solutions, what do you use when you're out and about, um, if anything? And then also, Don brought up a good point of using large memory cards, and I want to have all you guys ch- chime in on this. The idea that used to be that you know the whole eggs in one basket metaphor, where you know buy smaller memory cards therefore if one fails you have fewer images that you lost because they're not all on your gigantic you know all-encompassing memory cards and your entire trip is not gone because you lost one card does that hold water today in your guys opinion Doug you could start with you does that, that that eggs in one basket thing hold water or have SD cards and CF cards gotten to the point now where it doesn't matter they're all bulletproof?
1: Well, so the second question I think that I think it's sort of silly. I think you know wh- what are you gonna say if you have half of your images on one card half on another well you have twice you're twice as likely to lose one card. <laughs> I mean you know it's a it's The a universe crazy, balances well it's a it's sort of a crazy thing unless you you know you have copies on them and you keep them in two different places uh, I think some cameras allow to in camera copy from one slot to the other in fact mm-hmm. and that's sort of a that's sort of a handy thing. Uh, SD cards, uh, which now all my cameras have because I've pretty much, except for one Nikon, I've gotten rid of cameras that use CF cards. So those are tiny little things. It's easy to lose an SD card. So if you take it out of your camera, you've got to be careful with that thing. Ironically or not, I use the exact same thing that Topher uses. Um, <laughs> it, actually. This is a HyperDrive space UDMA. It's really an old model. This one has, mm-hmm. I think, 320 gigs in it. Um, I'm going to start using one of these new Western digital drives that has an SD slot in the drive enclosure which is essentially the same kind of thing as this but I've had this for years and years and this is backed up every trip I reformat it before I take a trip Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and it does incremental backups right onto the drive it's a really nice unit. not the fastest thing in the world but it's in the hotel room and it just keeps cranking away
0: and with something, are you you laptop free Doug in your hotel
1: room? uh, I'm not because I'm usually either I'm in a workshop or I'm teaching a workshop so I'm doing some post processing but I'm also uh, going the uh, iPhone 6 plus route and um, and I look forward to the day when I don't take the the laptop I certainly am not going to take an iPad anymore cuz I've got the iPad mini <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I mean the you know, a- aka the uh, the uh, iPhone 6 plus
0: yeah the iPad nano yeah <laughs> yeah iPad nano right. <laughs> well yeah.
1: So this anyway, is, uh, I look I look forward to the I mean I have a I have a MacBook Air. It fits in the camera bag. It's very light, but I I'd, I'd love not to take it.
0: Yeah. Are you using the the 13-inch the or the 11-inch MacBook? The 13. Air? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, it's it, there's a lot of little details in this, you know, from portable solutions to, you know, just straight dumb hard drives that you plug in through a USB or FireWire or a Thunderbolt and then you know, like the the more smart solutions like you guys have where you actually plug in an SD card and, and copy the images over to the device, they're obviating the, use, the necessity for a computer altogether. I, I tend to like that. I like the idea of being able to kind of offload them over.
1: They're very handy. I think, yeah. I mean, Topher's probably got at least as much experience that I, I do. It's just served you well for many years.
2: Yeah. yeah, and you can actually replace the hard drive in that on the go. So oh. if it's really critical, I keep a stack of hard drives in a travel case, and then just open it up at night, replace the hard drive, and go from there. And wanted to touch quickly on something Don said about kind of the internal failure mechanisms that hard drives have, yeah. because the same thing's true for these SD and CF card media. And it's important to note that the failure rate goes up the longer you go between using a card. So if you have a 32 gigabyte SD card that's been sitting in your drawer for a year, the internal mechanism that corrects all those failures only takes place when you write to that media. So pretty much you can always read the data off of it, but you're more likely to get a write failure if it's uh, been a while since you've actually written to that card. So one tip I tell people is before you go on a big trip, especially if it's to like Iceland or Cuba or the Yukon territory, is reformat and low-level format all of your media because mm-hmm. that guarantees you're actually writing to every bit on the media.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I also <laughs> want to say too that uh, earlier this year, my grandfather was on a trip and bought a cheap SD card and it uh, died on him halfway through a cruise. Right. Right. And so you know the the quality of the media does play a factor into that. I personally have never had a memory card fail, and I buy the the, the SanDisk Extreme Pros and the Lexar uh, high-end ones are about the same quality. Uh, I have not heard of any of these particular cards failing. That's not to say that they won't. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that they're far more reliable now than they used to be. Uh, I remember I had uh, a, a camera ages ago. I think it was my dad's that used smart media cards which uh, were like these gigantic wafer thin chips and if you so much as breathe on it the wrong way, you'd snap whatever internal circuitry there was uh, and things were fragile and things would break easily. I think that, uh, Tofu you made a good point about formatting them uh, but I think that these are rock solid compared to what they used to be and I'm going to make an assumption that they will only get better in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's a wrong assumption but it's the one that I'm going with and I just loaded all up into one cards. Put all my eggs in that one basket and so far it's held water.
1: Another thing is rule number 7. Never format a card in the field. Because <laughs> because you will be tired or you will have been in the bar and you will accidentally format a card that you have not yet backed up. So take cards with you and do not format them when you're out on a job.
3: And Doug speaks from personal experience. Yes, I do.
0: <laughs> now, guys, I'm not, my video looks like it's frozen. I'm not sure what's going on here, but we'll, we'll continue with me looking pensive like that, if you can see <laughs> me. Um, you know, when, one last thing on this last topic here, um, or on this particular topic here, and that's, you guys remember in the old days the idea of the hard drives becoming fragmented over time in other words the data when you know you you guys know how data gets written to to hard drive is not written in a linear format the the head writes to wherever it has some free space and over time you end up with this big mosaic of pieces of files that live all over the place. The idea of defragmentation was it would essentially put everything back together to make it easier for the hard drive to seek and find any particular bit of information. Topher, I wanted to throw it back at you and just say is that still a factor these days on the user side or is that all taken care of on the back end by software these days?
2: You know, it's kind of an old world problem, that that absolutely did impact performance back in the day, and it still does to some degree today, but only for single drive solutions. Like, if you have a spinning hard drive inside your laptop, then it can still be a factor, but especially with solid state media, they, there's a term called write amplification, which yeah. is they move the bits all around depending on how you use the media anyway, so it's old world except for the case of a single hard drive that
0: you're using. Okay. Got it. Okay. You guys want to? You have anything to add to that? This
3: the whole defragmentation thing. If you have, uh, if you've got a, a drive array, just to to, to to come to the other side of it. If you have an array of drives that has, uh, say, four or five, or even fewer drives, need two drives. Uh, it's going to be likely reading information off of multiple drives at the same time, anyhow. And mm-hmm. so you're going to have some sort of complexity that software is handling behind the scenes that's obfuscated from you, that uh, just happens like magic. And there's really no involvement that you can do unless your particular hardware configuration has a utility you can run to clean things up. But it's going to be proprietary to that particular solution. Got it. Got it. All
0: right, guys, let's take a quick pause and thank another sponsor for this episode of This Week in Photo. And uh, that's our friends over at Sticky Albums. When Sticky Albums founder Nate Grehack was working as a professional photographer, he used to hand out paper business cards until one client finally told him that she really didn't like carrying paper around in her pockets. That was the inspiration for Nate founding Sticky Albums. It's a service that makes it super simple to create a custom mobile photo app for each of your clients. As a business owner, you'll love Sticky Albums because you can customize your galleries per client with your own logo and contact information. And as your clients share their app with all of their friends and family, it's like they're passing out digital business cards for you. And Nate and his team have just released a brand new version of Sticky Albums with some cool new features this year that has already won a PPA Hot 1 award. And be sure to check out the Sticky Albums blog to learn how wedding photographer Sal Sincata created a simple sticky album for a popular wedding venue in his city that skyrocketed his word of mouth referrals. And for the TWIP audience, Nate has provided the discount code TWIP, T-W-I-P, that will knock $40 off your annual membership, including unlimited apps. All right, guys, let's close this off. Uh, this has been a fantastic discussion. We still have to do the Picks of the Week real quick, but I want to close it off just with some thoughts from you guys, starting with you, Don, on just the the internals. So we started with a discussion a little bit about frag- disks defragmentation and fragmentation, but I wanted to talk about RAID uh, that Doug brought up and what that is for folks that, you know, they shy away from that when they see that acronym. What is it? And then I want to talk about the the pluses and minuses minuses of SD or SSD drives versus the spinning hard drives that we see. So, Don, let's start
3: with you. So RAID technology, what is it? Well, it, it's, it's an old technology, but, I mean, it's still in use today, uh, and it's improved quite a bit. But there's a few different flavors of it. It all involves uh, taking multiple hard drives together and making them serve one purpose. So, you know, RAID 0 would allow two drives to be read simultaneously and have the data uh, not mirrored across them, but spread out across them so that you can read and write faster. But if any one drive in that array fails, the entire array is dead. Mm. Um, RAID 1 would be a mirroring solution where you would have two drives equally mirrored, one on top of each other. So if one drives, the other one is still good to go and, uh, and you're golden and you can repair that array. There are more complicated arrays that will use multiple drives and will have parity drives so that if one drive in the array fails you can replace it and recover information that way. Uh, And then there's uh, proprietary solutions even further than that like Drobo would use where you can just throw in any old drives and it finds a way to to mash them together. The problem with this is uh, you can't just plug a RAID array into a computer and have it work. There's usually some level of proprietary software or a controller that maintains all of this, and that's another point of failure. If your Drobo uh, array fails, well, you might be you know, scratching your head to try and find a solution to that because now you have no way to read any of those drives separately. The same can be said for any RAID controller. If the controller dies, the data that's uh, being accessed through that is now inaccessible. Uh, so that, that particular component would need to be replaced. But it allows you to have, I mean hard drives right now reach up to 6 terabytes in size if you go for like the, 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 the highest level. But you can have an array of those drives appear in your operating system as one drive. Mm-hmm. So that makes it very easy for me to have all of my raw files in one place. If I have 20 terabytes worth of raw data, I'm not quite there yet. but. I I only have them in one spot. They're not spread out across multiple locations where I have to juggle, okay, well, which drive did I store this year's images on uh, and and try and figure that out in my head. It allows me to have it all concise in one spot, and there is some level of redundancy and backup in that solution as well, not to say that that should be depended on. Yeah, and
0: I and I, I throw in there, uh, Doug. I want to have you chime in on this as well. So there's the 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 acronym RAID means redundant array of independent disks, right? But there's like Don was saying, there's multiple levels in there. Like, what are are you using RAID on any in any of your backup kind of scenarios? Yeah. Yeah, the i is inexpensive, by the way. Oh, it's inexpensive. Range. Oh, I thought it was independent. Okay.
1: No, it's yeah, inexpensive we're... because it used to be that you know a 10 megabyte drive cost ten thousand um, dollars. <laughs> yep. And I and I I have a platter from one up there. It's a 14 inch disk platter. Uh, <laughs> but um, yes, I do, and I and I do not follow the conventional wisdom, uh, and I I think I've put a lot of logic into this, and I've been doing disk arrays for 30 years or so. I use RAID 0 on everything here. Well, not everything. Most of my systems because I want the performance. And that's because a single drive or a mirrored drive cannot keep up with Thunderbolt speeds. So you need to go to RAID 0 to get disk drives that can be combined to be able to take full advantage of Thunderbolt. I also don't think it's, in, you know, it, disk drives will fail, but so will complete disk subsystems. Mm-hmm. And so, it's you don't have to have redundant redundancy. If you have two sets of drives that are backing up one another, or you know the secondary is backing up the primary, you don't really need to have redundancy within the first one because if you have mirrored disks or RAID five disks, you could still have a failure, as Don mentioned. So um, I go for two totally separate systems that are replicated from one another. Uh, and within each one of those, it's you know pedal to the metal for performance.
0: Love it, love it. Okay, so RAID zero, but redundancy, hardware Raid. redundancy, and yeah, RAID of
1: RAID zero, but two completely separate systems.
0: Got it, Topher. What about you? What What yeah. do you
2: gravitate towards? Well, so on the acronym, actually, both you guys are right. When RAID was originally invented, it was Redundant Array of Inexpensive Discs, but as those RAID arrays themselves cost tens of thousands of dollars, the marketing teams use the term independent instead. Ah, see, it's the gray gray hair.
0: Win. Johnson wins, baby.
2: (laughs) And, you know, to Don's point and, and Doug's point as well, that if you think about all these different numbers configurations, you can distill it down to RAID 0, striping, and RAID 1, mirroring. And Mm -hmm. think about it like a pendulum, that on RAID 0, it's pure performance, no redundancy whatsoever. You know, we joke in backup that 0 stands for how much data you'll be able to recover if something goes wrong. And then on the other side is RAID 1, mirroring, which is pure redundancy, no additional performance. So all of these other RAID flavors of 5, 6, 3, you know, RAID N is what Drobo calls their RAID solution, is somewhere in between those two. And so when evaluating your solution, you want to think, do I want a drive that's more about performance or one that's about redundancy and finding the right RAID flavor that works for you there?
1: Yeah, I want to mention one thing. I also use RAID 5 for Time Machine. Mm-hmm. What is what is RAID 5? Okay. RAID so- 5 is essentially N-1. So you use one drive up for your parity drive, if you will, your CRC drive. So if I have three... Four terabyte drives. Instead of having 12 terabytes total, I only have eight terabytes of usable. But I can survive the failure of any one drive. Okay. Ra- RAID five is not a particularly fast system, uh, but it's a pretty good way to get large amounts of storage for things like uh, Time Machine.
0: And that's yeah, kind of the so... way Drobo's work, right? Because yeah. I have on the well, Drobo's, I can tick a box that say. You know, well, they automatically can survive one disk in the array failing, but if I tick a box, I can have it upgrade to dual drive redundancy so two drives can fall. Of course, my storage goes down. Right? Just to be clear here, too, though, there's
2: so RAID is actually a, a standardized algorithm, and the way Drobo does things is distinctly different. Yeah. You get the feature of either single disk or dual disk redundancy, but mm-hmm. they go about it in an entirely different way. Uh, if you think about it, every different type of RAID requires a different number of minimum drives. So in RAID 0 and RAID 1, they require two drives to make a RAID set. You know, I'm a child of the 80s, so th- think you're making Voltron here, that you need two pieces <laughs> to come together in order to make that RAID set. With RAID 5, like Doug's talking about, and there's also a RAID flavor called RAID 3, but no one uses it anymore, you need three drives, so that you're distributing the parity, or this redundancy data, across all the drives. Uh, the dual disk redundancy in Drobo or also RAID 6 requires four drives because you're using two drives worth of redundancy. So it's not like you can have two drives and get RAID 5 magically. Uh, you need to have the minimum number of drives on your computer.
3: Now, Topher, I, I want to jump in and, and ask. It's going to be kind of geeky, but uh, I remember on a motherboard I had ages ago it had a system called RAID 0 plus 1 which mm-hmm. would mirror the data across the drives for writing to it but it would mm-hmm. read it from each drive uh, at the same time to double the performance but still have the redundancy does that still exist so Everybody implemented that
2: kind of differently. Was it two drives or four drives that you were using? It was two drives. It was two drives? Okay. So you can implement RAID in a lot of different places. On Mac OS X, you can actually implement it purely in software, so no additional hardware. So if you had a whole bunch of USB drives. In that type of what we call a motherboard RAID, it's like on a PC motherboard, it's implemented in the firmware of that controller. Uh, Typically those, they either call them zero plus one or one plus zero, striping over mirroring or mirroring over striping. It was kind of a hack to begin with. They would basically segment up the physical disk into multiple smaller disks and then create a raid set off of that, so it was all marketing stuff.
3: (laughs) All right, well there's your propeller hat segment right there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This whole show is propeller hats.
3: Alright guys, let's close it off with
0: just SSD versus spinner, spinning hard drive comparison. Don I'm gonna keep it on you for this. So you know the SSD, this is my perspective. SSD is awesome, super fast, somewhat limited in terms of capacity, super expensive. Spinning drives, failure rate higher, uh, cheaper, heavier,
3: bigger represents old news technology. Am I accurate? I I think that you are to some degree. Uh, The SSDs are quickly replacing hard drives in a lot of ways because the capacities are going up uh, so fast. I mean, I I built my computer here about a year and a half ago and I spent a lot of money on a one terabyte SSD. Now Mm -hmm. that same uh, one terabyte SSD is less than half the price that I paid for it. And so that technology is evolving very, very quickly. Um, As the process technology to make these transistors smaller and smaller, they can pack even more into a drive even more cheaply. So, and and the performance uh, in in almost every case is going to be far faster on an SSD versus a traditional hard drive, but uh, if you're looking for just pure bulk storage, uh, a traditional start, uh, hard drive is going to have the best bang for your buck, and everybody that's looking to store terabytes worth of photographs, they're not going to be doing it on SSDs at this time. That might change in five years, because those uh, the, the price-to-performance ratio is always in flux. And uh, And as hard drives continue to improve, we've got six terabytes now, maybe in a couple of years we'll have eight, but SSDs are going to catch up to that. And I think there will be a breaking point where that switches.
0: Yeah, Doug. Doug, what do you think when 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 photographers are looking for either external drives or buying a new computer and they have the option of SSD or you know the spinning cheaper hard drive in there, which should they go with?
1: Well, uh, I think Don's right. Uh, SSD is a little bit expensive to use for backup, but you put it as your primary storage. I have, in fact, a an enclosure here with a pair of SSD drives and a Thunderbolt connection, mm-hmm. which is waiting for Apple to announce the new iMac in two days so I can use it because my iMac doesn't have Thunderbolt. But, you know, for for your primary storage, um, for your working storage, for your cache, SSD is, boy, as a working photographer, it's well worth the money because it's a screamer in terms of performance. Yeah,
0: yeah. Topher, do you have any closing thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I think it comes down to price, performance, and capacity. That depending on what your need is, like if it's travel photography, I'd go with an SSD because there's no spinning parts. You're not needing the big capacity, but you know, to Don and Doug's point, if you need terabytes and terabytes, that's going to be thousands of dollars with SSD, yeah. so it's yeah. cost prohibitive.
0: Well, the the other pieces that I wonder, and Topher, I'm going to have you ch- you uh, uh, address this as well, is that I've read that SSDs. Um, have a limited number of read writes per for, per drive, so you know it's. And I don't know if it's if that carries over into the spinning drives as well, but specifically or particularly on SSDs, they you know it's not it's not infinite. What, what do you think? So I'll spin up the propeller head and tell me when to stop at any point. But I, <laughs>
2: you know, with SSDs, just like any storage, you know, there's a term called MTBF, mean time before failure, mm-hmm. and every piece of storage will fail eventually. Depending on the type of SSD technology, you'll hear buzzwords like SLC and MLC, which has to do with the actual technology. There's a number of times that you can read and write to that particular media. media. Just like with a spinning hard drive, you can't read and write to it indefinitely. Uh, With MLC SSDs, which is pretty much what everybody's using today, uh, that life cycle, that duty cycle is incredibly long, but eventually you will hit it. You know, if you're using this for a RAID array, you're going to hit it much faster than what you're using in your camera. Mm-hmm. Um, so, absolutely, the life cycle of both an SSD and a hard drive is, is you know an important calculation. And what and are I we
0: looking at, at in, ter- in terms of of windows on that? Because if it's if that life cycle, if I hit that that failure window in five years, I don't care because I'll have replaced the drive with some other hardware by then but if it's five months or even a year then it becomes a factor
2: absolutely and one of the biggest things I tell people when they're buying storage is look at the warranty uh, That no drive should fail within the warranty window for any yeah. reason SSD hard drive etc and finding a drive that has a two-year warranty versus a one-year warranty is a great way to protect your investment Uh, You know, I send drives off all the time that fail prematurely. There's no way that a storage company can guarantee that this drive will work indefinitely. Um, So having a good warranty is an important
0: consideration. So look at the warranty duration and also look at the the MTBF number, the mean time between failure number and...
2: Base your decision on that, right? I mean, nobody will sell you a storage product that will die within a year or two of typical use. Um, So I think, you know, they quote, you know, 10 years, 20 year shelf life, but
3: there's really no way to guarantee that. Yeah. I was going to chime in and say that uh, you know, t- to that point exactly, if I buy a drive and it has X capacity, the next year that capacity might double uh, or maybe it's the year after that. But The capacity evolves so quickly that I'm going to be buying a newer drive to keep up with my needs far before my old one fails. Mm. So. Even while it will fail, and that's almost a guarantee uh, at some point, uh, but it's going to be so far off that it's going to be almost obsolete before I reach that time, as long as you uh, do what uh, Topher said and take a look at that warranty period. If it's a five-year warranty period or longer, I'd say you're pretty much fine, because I'm not going to be using any uh, media of any kind for five years uh, before I upgrade to something else. Yeah.
0: Cool guys. All right, uh, let's let's close this show off. This has been awesome, and thank you guys for hanging in there. It's been a marathon trip, but I think this is uh, all this information is necessary and needed to get out there. Um, before we jump into the picks of the week segment that we're going to blow through relatively quickly, I want to thank our last sponsor for this episode of this week in photo, and that's our good friends over at Shutterstock. This episode of TWiP is brought to you by Shutterstock.com where you'll find the perfect image or video for your next creative project. Whether it's for your website, a publication, an advertisement, a video, or any other type of project, you can choose from over 40 million high-quality stock photos, illustrations, vectors, and video clips. Plus, Shutterstock ensures you get quality and selection. Many contributors to Shutterstock are professional photographers and artists, and Shutterstock's professional curators review each image individually for content and quality before adding it to its library. And Shutterstock has over 275 images added each and every week, so the next time you visit, you'll find something new. Plus, Shutterstock has flexible pricing. You can choose individual image packs or a monthly subscription for the best deal. For example, you can download 25 images per day with a standard subscription, and you can download any image in any size and pay only one price. And lastly, Shutterstock makes it easy to find and share your image. They've got a new palette tool that allows you to create a gallery of images in several shades of a single color or with different tones that coordinate. And you can use pre-made selections or create your own. Plus, there's the new people tool. It's a new way to browse and group images of people by number, ethnicity, age, and gender. You can explore multiple options of a, for a shoot for a consistent look and feel of your images. New accounts receive 20% off any image subscription. Just go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code TWIP914. Remember, head over to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code TWIP914. All right, let's jump into the Picks of the Week segment. Remember, you guys can pick something to recommend to the TWIP army as long as it somehow relates to photography. Don Komarechka, I'm going to let you go first. What's your pick of the week?
3: All right, well, uh, I had done some traveling recently, and I was looking for a tripod to take with me uh, that was lightweight and uh, would, would sort of suit my needs. I've got a big camera. I'm still shooting with, like, the uh, the, the big boy digital SLRs, Oh wow! And So, uh, I mean, <laughs> and so it's, <laughs> That's yeah, it's impressive. Exactly, and and so I, I was looking around to see what might uh, might fit my needs. And uh, full disclosure, uh, Manfrotto uh, uh, does sponsor me, and so uh, I asked them to see you know what, what might suit this particular case, and and they had given me um, their Be Free tripod. And I've been really, really happy with this particular device. It, it, it shrinks up pretty small. They actually have a carbon fiber version of it, but this is the aluminum one. If you want it even lighter, uh, and so this would just sort of sit on top of my uh, my camera bag while I was traveling around. Uh, weighs almost nothing in comparison to all of the other gear that I was carrying. Uh, stretches up pretty tall, folds up pretty nicely, and it would hold my uh, my 1DX and uh, any of the lenses that I brought with me without uh, you know even batting an eye. Lash at it, so uh, I was pretty happy with this. And uh, you know, I've got like four or five different tripods from many different manufacturers, um, all with different features and what have you. But if I was traveling and I plan to do some more in the future, uh, this is what's going to be coming along with me. It's just something small and light that gets the job done and does it well.
0: I love it. Yeah, my favorite tripod right now is my Mi Photo. It's a little one. It looks it looks similar to that one, but it's a you know it's a little travel tripod that folds up pretty small. And I you know I take it everywhere. In fact, I have two of them. I take one sits here and I grab it if I'm going to go travel, and I keep one in the car at all times. So in case I need to pull over, I'm not like oh that would be a great shot if I just had my tripod. It's <laughs> it's always in the car. Cool. All right, the Manfrotto b free tripod from Don Comaresca. Thank you. All right, Topher, what about you? What's your pick of the week?
2: Yeah, so a friend of TWIP, uh, Trey Ratcliffe, has a really great ebook that's about organizing your photos, and it mm-hmm. kind of does in a three-stage approach for how hands-on you want to be. And one of the key things for photo backup is actually organizing and having a good system for your photos. So it's a good complementary thing to everything we're talking about here today. And uh, we'll include a link in the show notes.
0: I love it. Stuck in Customs, yes. Trey and Stuck in Customs and the Arcanum and all those guys are friends of This Week in Photo. Uh, Doug Kay, speaking of the Arcanum, you're an Arcanum master, and uh, you also have a pick of the week. What do you got?
1: I do. Well, first I want to remind people that if they look in the show notes, they can go look at the article in the Twit blog uh, about my storage solution and all the pain I went through to get to there. Uh, But my my official pick of the week is uh, a gadget. I don't have it in my hand at the moment. It's in the other room, but it's called the Lens Flipper. And I do street photography, and I change lenses frequently. And this is a, a an ingenious thing, which is it's on a strap you can wear it around your neck, and it has two lens mounts on it. So you can have your second lens on this thing. You can take a lens off your camera, put it on the mount on on the lens flipper, and then take the other lens and put it on your camera. And so rather than having to juggle two lenses at once and drop one. You have a way to do that. It costs eighty nine dollars, eighty nine ninety five. You can get it for the Sony A mount, E mount, Nikon, or Canon, and it's a it's a just a cool little gadget.
3: Very cool. Eighty nine. That is a problem that I've had in the past, and I've like, my 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 lovely wife is always the person that juggles the lenses for me when we're traveling together, <laughs> uh, and I, I I bet it annoys her, uh, but she is a very faithful assistant and, and willing to help. But with this, you know, I, I, that's worth its weight in gold. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. I,
1: and I'm hoping someday they'll do one with three heads because I often will yeah. have three primes with me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Cool. Perfect. All good tips. Good picks. Cool.
0: Mine is uh, is a little geeky. It's not that expensive, and i got to tell you, it is the new object of my desire. It just came in a couple days ago, um, I bought this thing off Amazon, you know, the, the evil Amazon Prime got me with the one-click purchasing. <laughs> so I got this thing, it's the Fujifilm Instax. Um, I wish you guys could see me, my video's for some reason gone. I was going to demonstrate how it works, but I'll do that in a separate video. Um, but it's a little, it's a little printer that fits in the palm of your hand, and you connect to it through an app on your Android or iOS device. And it quickly just spits out these little, cool-looking, micro-Polaroid-looking photos of from your camera, right? Or from your, from your smart device. So back to our earlier discussion, one of the reasons I got this was, A, yeah, it's cool just to make these little prints and hand out to people, which I plan on doing in New York when we're there for Photo Plus. But I was thinking, this is, you know, being able to take my, my uh, Panasonic GH4 Put my nice little portrait lens on there. T- take photos, raw plus JPEG. JPEG goes over to the iPhone, make some quick tweaks, you know, in the new Photos app or whatever, and create a print within all of like three minutes and hand it to the person. It's like magic. And this thing is cool. It runs on batteries. It just goes in your bag. You know, you put a 10 pack of film in there, which is admittedly not cheap, um, but you put a 10 pack of film in there. It's roughly ISO 800 and you're good to go you know you just you you rock and roll and you're bringing the physical or the digital world into the physical world and it's 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 a nuance that i can't describe i was playing with it taking pictures of my friend popping them out of this little printer handing them over and the look on people's face the, the face but you know aside from you know if you contrast that with okay here's a picture I just took of you and you text it to them versus here's a picture I just took of you and you hand it to them priceless you can't you can't even put a dollar value on it it's amazing
1: yeah, totally. Frederick, I want to mention one thing. I have the Instax camera from Fuji. Yes. Which is the complete camera uses the same film packs. When I'm doing street photography in a second or third world country, and I want to break the ice with somebody who, with whom I not, might not even share a common language, you give them an instant picture, a little Polaroid. They may never have even had a picture taken of themselves before, and you instantly have a, an access access to be able to take a portrait of them.
0: I love it.
2: I love it. Printing is the original backup strategy. I mean, we kind of forget <laughs> that, that. You know, digitals come along, and everybody thinks about the cloud and everything. But if you have a print, you know, in an absolute worst-case scenario, you can go scan or reimage that. That, uh, anyways.
3: Well, <laughs> I, I want to add one final thing to that too. My, my father was a, an early adopter to digital, but at the time where he was you know, taking pictures, there was no backup strategies. It wasn't even a thought. From the point where he bought his first digital camera to the point where I was maybe about 16 or 17 years old, I don't have any of those pictures. They are lost to time with hard drives that were formatted and computers that were thrown out because there was no backup strategy being thought of at that time. I still have all of the pictures before that because they were in a shoebox in my closet because they were printed. Yeah. And so you know, it, it, to, to add one extra layer to things, not to say that you should print all of your pictures, but that survives all of those levels of human error very nicely.
0: It does, it does. and it, it, there's there's some romance to it too because even though these pictures I'm looking at the box here I can't see what the actual size oh they're 6.2 centimeters by 4.6 centimeters um but they're you know on my refrigerator right now there's a growing matrix of these little photos (laughs) that that for some reason are much cooler sitting on the the you know my refrigerator than in the camera roll on my you know on my phone and Will be enjoyed by many more people, even though in their digital, their native digital format, they could be seen by millions of people if I wanted them to. But only a select few will see the ones that are stuck to my refrigerator. And there's some romance to that too. It's just, it's kind of, it's kind of a nuance. I can't put my finger on that, but I'm, I'm digging it. And I may, I think I'm stuck on the Instax uh, kind of bandwagon here because this share, it's called the Share SP1. Is my gateway drug? I think I'll be getting <laughs> I think I'll be getting that camera dug because that, uh, that looks pretty cool too. I don't know. All right guys, we are at the end of another episode of this weekend in photo guys. I want to thank you for hanging in there for this whole episode. It's been a marathon, but I think you know I'm kind of I'm digging the, uh, the single focus topic. Type twip where we we take one topic and just beat it to a pulp, reconstitute it, and then beat it again. I think I, <laughs> I think I kind of like that. We may do more of these kind of shows. So Don, uh, where would you like people to go to check out your stuff and connect with you
3: online? Well, I'll be posting all of my images on Google+ Plus for these uh, past trips over the next couple of weeks, so check me out there, uh, and you can get the link to that and everywhere else I am online at doncom.ca. It's d-o-n-k-o-m.ca, and I look forward to getting in touch. And I also want to say that on the last time I was on, um, I had asked, you know, people if, if they were willing to, uh, you know, if they wanted to have a, a sort of a, a light critique of their work, uh, just to send me an email. And I got a response from maybe twenty or thirty of the Twip listeners, and I was so happy to uh, respond them and start some conversations so uh, don't ever be afraid to, uh, to get in touch and start a conversation And uh, it, it's, it's always fun to hear from listeners Excellent, excellent and I'd also like
0: to add to that that you are joining the TWIP family as one of our co-hosts right alongside Mr. Doug Kay. there doing a show you want to give us a glimpse into what that show is going to be
3: about Doug? Well, we're still hammering out the details, Frederick, but it's going to be—it's uh, more of a technical approach, and it's going to be kind of the idea of distilling things down from—you know—taking one topic at a time, uh, looking partly at the, uh, the 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 science and the. Uh, technology behind how you make an image, how we physically perceive photographs and sort of getting right under the hood uh, uh, from a technical and almost a philosophical and psychological perspective as to how photography comes together. So it's going to be a really fun show that we're putting up.
0: Love it. I'm looking at you as the Canadian photography based Neil deGrasse Tyson.
3: <laughs> no, don't put me up on that pedestal. Uh, but I do appreciate it.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, man. Doug K., what about you? Where can people go to connect with you?
1: Uh, they can go to dougk.com, which will have my portfolio, which is woefully out of date and links to everything else, but I spend most of my time on Google.
0: Wonderful. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks for coming on. I'm looking forward to our next episode of uh, All About the Gear. What do you have in your hot little hands that you're We've testing?
1: We've right got now? the Nikon D810. Ooh. And uh, it's going to be Nikon month because we're going to follow that with a D750.
0: Love it. Good. Good. Finally. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. laughs> Too much mirrorless, man. We need some. We I know. Got mirrors in this I gotta, show. I got to get out the wrist brace. And, uh, in <laughs> and fact, the back this, brace. Well, this weekend I'm shooting the Blue Angels with a D4S and a 200 to 400 millimeter zoom. So I'm I'm going to start doing push-ups. Awesome. Where are the Blue Angels? San Francisco. Yeah. Is it Fleet Week again? Fleet Week starts, uh, they, they arrive today and they perform, they rehearse Friday and they perform Saturday, Sunday.
0: I'm on it. I'm, I'm all over it. Cool. Maybe I'll do some little Fujifilm Instax shots of the movie. <laughs> 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 Somebody stop me! <laughs> awesome. Alright, thanks a lot, Doug. Topher Martini, what about you? What's going on in your world or when, where can people connect with you?
2: Feel free to reach out at TopherMartini.com or
0: at TopherMartini on Twitter. Love it, Topher. You know, whenever you're on the show, I always get the feeling that the you are an iceberg of information, and we only get to see the very top of it. I know it, just, <laughs> you know, it goes Sorry. down about five fathoms, right? <laughs> so
2: I do do a storage consulting business as well. So feel free to reach out on Twitter or contact me that way if anybody's interested in more information about this. But yeah, it's you know, photography is really cool. That's a balance of technology, photography, but moreover, everyday lifestyle. So definitely, the iceberg is
0: there. I love it. I, I didn't know you had a storage consulting business. That's, so reiterate that. So if people want help with all the stuff that we just kind of confuse them with, <laughs> you <laughs> will you will help them kind of st- straighten out the spaghetti. Yeah. So one of the things I've done for friends and turned it into
2: kind of a small business is people need help with the initial setup of like what to go buy or how to put it all together. And once it's done, they're pretty much off and running. And it ends up being you know kind of a, probably about ten hours worth of work. And I negotiate things different ways. But this whole topic of storage. Is really complex. As a photographer, you just want to focus on taking images, and so it's a little hobby thing I've started up. But uh, feel free to reach out on Twitter or email.
0: I love it. Thank you for doing that. That's a that is a much needed service as we've uncovered in this episode of Twelve. <laughs> So cool. Well, all you guys, thank you, thank you for coming on. It's uh, it's been a pleasure and very educational. And to the listeners, be sure to visit our website at thisweekinfoto.com um, to learn more about storage. Doug K panda awesome, very comprehensive post on backup strategies for photographers that echoes a lot of the stuff that we talked about in this audio version. So head over to the show and just you'll you'll be able to find that relatively simple. Just search for backup strategies or, or look under posts by Doug K you'll find it. And with that, guys, you know what? It's time to take that lens cap off.
3: This week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers
1: John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.